As we come now before the very word of God, if you'd like to read with me, we'll be in Genesis chapter 11. We've been in Genesis for some months now, and we're starting to wind down our time in these early chapters of Genesis, but uh, this morning we'll be in Genesis 11. And before we read, would you please pray with me? Lord Jesus, you've told us that if we abide in your word, we are truly your disciples, and we will know the truth, and the truth will set us free. We long for the sort of freedom that comes with that. Lord, would you, would you show us the truth here? Help us by your spirit to abide in these things, to believe and to trust in them. Guide us now as your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have this morning these first nine verses in Genesis chapter 11. So this is Genesis chapter 11. We'll begin in verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let's make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, Come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let's go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the word of God. Now, many of us are probably familiar with at least part of this account. You know, this is part of what's commonly called the Tower of Babel. And even culture at large, not just Christians, but even people who aren't, might recognize that term, Tower of Babel, even if they don't necessarily know that it comes from the Bible. The Tower of Babel is often presented as an explanation for the origin of multiple languages. And there is something to that. You know, the Tower of Babel account here gives us some background for the Table of Nations that we talked about last week in chapter 10, how we are all of one man, 
all have come from Adam and then all from Noah, but we've now become many clans, many lands, many, many languages. But this account isn't just about the multiplicity of languages. There is so much more going on here than just that. It's not just a quirky background of this far ancient history. It gives us a window into who we are, a window into some of our natural tendencies and how we relate to God. So our big driving question for the rest of our time is just this. The question is, what is the sin of Babel? That's what we're after. What is the sin of Babel? It might be, likely is, that there's more than just one sin here. But what's really at the core? Maybe you have a guess about what the sin of Babel is, but it might not be what you think. Now, let's take a look at this Babel account to see what we can unearth. And in this case, as we look at this text, I think it's probably helpful if we start at the end of the account and work our way backward. The scene here ends with a ghost town. Do you notice that? At the end, we have this abandoned, half-built city. So before they could finish constructing this tower, this town, we hear in verse 8 at the end of it that they just left off building the city and moved away. Can you imagine what a strange, eerie sight it would be then? If you happen to be driving by, if cars were a thing back then, and drive by and see on your right this half a town wouldn't it make you wonder what happened there? Now, this is not the end of the story for this city of Babel. At some point long after this in history, Babel eventually becomes repopulated. Babel is later built up into a megacity, an empire that we now know as Babylon. It's the one with the famous King Nebuchadnezzar who's, who burns down Jerusalem and exiles the remaining people of God there for a time. But when we end here, we're not at Babylon as we know it. It's just this ghost town known as Babel. And we're told the reason it's called Babel is because in Hebrew, maybe you have a footnote in your Bibles, in Hebrew, Babel sounds like the word confused. So the people start with one single language. They're all united. But toward the end, they're now this confused, mixed hodgepodge of multiple languages. Now, different languages are not themselves a bad thing, right? We love languages. Given enough time or space, a diversity of languages is likely to happen eventually anyway. But here, it's not just about the multiplicity of languages. There's a confusion that happens because God splits all the languages in one moment. Can you imagine what that might have felt like? You know, you, 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 you go over to your neighbor's house, knock on the door, ding, 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 cup of sugar or whatever it is that you're over there for, and they answer and, and you, you have your business, and then you're having a, a chat about the weather or, or whatever else, and in the middle of their sentence, suddenly the person switches to speaking German. 
I mean, they don't know, they don't know any languages. That some other language that they clearly seem to be talking, but that makes no sense to my ear at all. My face would just have some sort of shock on it, a surprise, I'm sure. And then if I try to res respond back to them, suddenly I'm speaking in, say, Arabic. And they, you know, what is happening here? I you know, go back home and maybe some people around there are speaking different languages. Not only would this be confusing, that would be hugely unsettling, scary even. You can see why the people would suddenly pick up what they've got and just leave. Now, the Lord's intent in confusing these languages is not just to have a little bit of fun with them. Ooh, let's stir up their languages and see what happens. That's not what he's after, nor is he just trying to create cultural diversity. The Lord does this to cause them to split to cause them to disperse. That's the key word of the text, that they disperse, they scatter. Now, this dispersion is not a full punishment or judgment from God. In this way, it's different from the flood over all the earth. It's different from the death that comes from, from the disobedience that happens in the Garden of Eden. But this dispersion is God's practical response to, to split up break up what is happening in Babel. God doesn't do this by just wrecking ball the city. There's a shell of the city that still remains, but, but he wrecks their ability to carry on building. Because something has clearly gone wrong. The Lord says a bit earlier, this is just the beginning of what they're going to do. That is, if I leave them alone, this is just going to get bigger. They're only going to reach further. This is only going to spiral more. And so he nips the city in the bud, confusing their language and scattering the people. So that still leaves us now with the question, what is it really that the Lord wants to put a stop to here? What is the sin of Babel? You might notice that at the start of this account, the people don't want to be dispersed. They don't want to be scattered, and that's a very natural inclination, isn't it? It's, that, in fact, the reason why they build the city. They say, hey, let's build a city. Let's build this tower of Babel so that we won't be dispersed. Ironically, it ends up with the opposite effect that the city, building of the city and the tower is part of what gets them dispersed. But, but it should make us ask the question, was it wrong? Uh, was it sin for them to build a city in the first place? Was it wrong for them to gather in one place? Well, no. <laughs> that seems strange. It might seem strange that I even have to ask if city building is a sin. But there are a lot of assumptions people make assuming that about this text, so we should take a closer look at it. We know that God is not generally opposed to cities as cities. Yeah? Prior to this, back in, in chapter 4, long before the flood, there was a city built called Enoch. 
And there's no tell of any problems or any need to disperse that city. There's nothing wrong with city building there. Even after this, God makes his dwelling on earth, not just in a field somewhere or off in a haystack. He makes his dwelling in the chosen city of Jerusalem. And then even forever after, in the new heavens and the new earth, the dwelling of God is described as the new Jerusalem, the everlasting city of God with its own citizens its own foundation, its own walls and gates. There's even measurements in Revelation about the size of this city. So this is not to say that God is pro-rural, but anti-city, anti-urban. Some people think that. That's not what God says here. Some people look at this and they go, oh, wait a minute. But weren't the people supposed to spread out on the earth? They gathered up here in the city. Weren't they supposed to spread out? You know, the blessing of God upon humanity was that we would be uh, fruitful and multiply and fill the land. How do we do that if we're just clumped in a city? Well, it's true that we're supposed to fill the land, but that's not the same as, as a command to spread out and scatter everywhere. Filling the land does not forbid gathering and settlements. Adam and Eve, before the fall, when all is good, are given the same blessing from God that they're to fill the land. And yet they are also specifically placed by God in a localized patch of earth, in this Garden of Eden, to work it to keep that land, not all lands, that land. They're not nomads who who stay in the garden for a little bit and then they pack up their tools and move on. They settle there in the garden. That's a good thing. And, And if they hadn't disobeyed God and taken the forbidden fruit, there's every indication that Adam and Eve's children and grandchildren and so on would have settled in the garden too. And they would have happily dwelled with God in this garden as a sort of holy city. Uh, It's not just that they're supposed to have kids and then move away and have kids and move away on some sort of repeat loop. You know, to fill the land is a long-term blessing from God. But it doesn't forbid the development of settlements, even large settlements. So the sin of the city of Babel is not the city itself. It's something that's happening inside the city. What's happening in the city of Babel? The text only tells us a few things. Some people zoom in on a particular phrase at verse 4, if you want to read it with me. Then they said, hey, come, let's build a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Ooh, that sounds interesting. Let's make a name for ourselves. Maybe that's the issue. They're trying to make a name for themselves. Maybe that's the sin of pride. Maybe that's the sin of self-importance. Let's take a closer look at that. To make a name... That is to build some sort of reputation. And the scripture is often a good thing. It's usually a good, honorable thing to make a name. The Lord makes a name for himself as a good God. The Lord even makes a name for others. 
It's the blessing of God to Abraham in the next chapter. And he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you and make your name great. So it's not necessarily sinful or prideful to have a great name, nor is it necessarily sinful or prideful to make or establish a great name for oneself. It sounds like maybe there's pride woven in, but there are times when the Apostle Paul and the prophet Samuel, I could mention others, there are times when they speak up to defend their own good name, to defend their reputation. A good name is a good thing to seek. Proverbs 22, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. Ecclesiastes 7, a good name is better than precious ointment. It's a desirable thing to have, even to make a good name. That by itself is not sin. It might be sin, but it might not. The way that we can tell if it's sin or not, the way that we can distinguish the difference is in the motive for making the name. Why does the name want to be made? So if we look in the context of Babel, maybe their seeking of making a great name comes from something sinful, some sort of pride or otherwise. But it's interesting that the text doesn't clearly tell us why they want to make a name, but it does tell us how. It does tell us how they want to make a name for themselves. They're going to do it by building the Tower of Babel. They're going to do it by building this central figure in the city, something that towers over the city with its feet on the ground, but it's got its head up in the heavens. So we look at this tower, we modern readers look at this tower, and we assume, well, of course, this has got to be an example of pride. They're over-elevating themselves. They've got their head up in the clouds, after all. But we've got the tower turned upside down in our minds. The Tower of Babel does connect land and sky. It's meant to be a sort of bridge or stairway between the two. But for them, the the tower is not a stairway up to the heavens. It's designed to be a stairway down to earth. And this is where we find the sin of Babel. Let me show you what I mean by this. Requires a bit of cultural context. You've got a name, a scholar, John Walton. He turned me on to this. A bunch of other scholars talk about this, all the nerdy things that you don't need to know, but there you go, a little background. What do you imagine, that the, if you picture it in your head, that the Tower of Babel looked like? What do you envision in your mind? Something big, Right? some sort of tower. Does that tower look like, you know, part of a Scottish castle? You know, one of those things at the end, what are those called? Turrets? It's got all the stone and all the rigid edges at the top, you know, on the corner of a castle. Or maybe you're imagining, you know, something like a giant clock tower, sort of like Big Ben, but without the clocks. Or maybe it's something like, you know, imagining the leaning Tower of Pisa. Just looks like this giant soup can a silo that's just sort of sticking up in the sky. 
You know, what most, that's what I imagine initially, what most of us imagine are probably not quite fitting to the reality of what occurred here. In this context, we're in ancient Mesopotamia, ancient Babylon, and a tower is known as a ziggurat. You know what a ziggurat is? I had to look it up, I'll be honest. A ziggurat's a pyramid, a particular kind of pyramid with the, the steps all the way up to the point. It's a big triangle, but it's got steps all the way up. And, and, and a ziggurat is built not just to be cool. It's not just this big, impressive structure that you could climb and play on, although wouldn't you want to? Uh, in fact, most ziggurats could not be touched once they were built because they were sacred spaces. A tower, a ziggurat, has a religious purpose specifically to be a ladder or stairs that would allow the gods to climb down to earth. That's why such things were built. So the word babble in Hebrew is a play on the word confused, but in the Arcadian, Arcadian language of this time, the city means gate of God. That's what Babel means to them. It means gate of God. This ziggurat tower, in their minds, would make Babel a gateway, a corridor that would connect heaven to earth and give them access to the gods. You can see now why they might think that building a city, and specifically a tower, not only is going to make a name for themselves, but it's also going to keep them from being dispersed. Because in their mind, Babel, if we've got this ladder to the sky, Babel will now be a place where God comes. Babel will be a place where God favors us. If we provide for God, God will provide for us. If we promote God, God will promote us. If we please God, God will be pleased with us. So we pull all this together. At its very core, the sin of Babel is this, that they diminish God. This giant tower built up to the sky is making God smaller, designed to bring God down to our level. And that is the opposite of everything that God says about himself. You could go many places, but we hear this in Isaiah chapter 40. He sits above the circle of the earth, and the earth's inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain, spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Who then will you compare me to that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created all these. 
He who brings them out by the host of their number, calling each one by name, by the greatness of his might, because he is strong in power, not a single one is missing. The scripture oozes with God who is high, the highest of high. And now we as a people want to give the creator of the cosmos some sort of convenient step stool. If the sin of the Garden of Eden was to think that we are too much like God, then the sin of the Tower of Babel is to think God is too much like us. That God can be diminished. That if we roll out the red carpet in just the right way, we can negotiate some sort of arrangement with God. Oh, God will not be diminished. He will not. God does come down to Babel here, you might have noticed. He comes down to see, <laughs> but he's not pleased with their efforts. Instead, he confuses and scatters the people leaving some sort of shell of an unfinished tower just scratching at the sky as a monument to their foolishness. You know, we, we might look at some of these ancient peoples and scoff. Oh, how silly of them. How quaint to think that they could diminish and move or somehow control God just by building a tower to him. We know so much better now, don't we? Don't we? You know, we, we may not be stacking stairways into the sky, but you bet we are tucking towers of Babel in our pockets to try to manipulate and turn God in our direction. We make him even smaller than they did. This can be a temptation for anyone, even for Christians, you know, to want to set up our own towers of Babel, to set up our own little gateways to God. Even if we know the good news, even if we know that the gospel of God in Jesus that saves us from sin is that we have obtained access to God, an access that brings us peace by, just by faith in Jesus. That God has saved us by grace through faith, which is not our own doing. It's all a gift of God and Jesus. None of it is our own works. Even if we believe that, even if we trust in that, which we should, that's what makes us Christians, even then it is easy to forget. And we diminish God by saying that what Jesus has done for us isn't enough. To think that I somehow need to add to what he's done. And so I'm going to start building a little tower of bricks. I'll add the brick of going to church. I'll add the brick of reading the Bible. 
add the brick of praying. I'm going to witness to the lost. I'm going to serve the needy. I'm going to care for the poor. I'm going to follow God's laws. And, and, and I start to build this tower, and I think, now I'm really going to be secure. Now I'll know that God is really with me, that he's in my corner, that he's going to come to my space. But this tower that we build is not the tower of security that we think it is. It's, of course, not to say that, that we shouldn't go to church and serve the needy and pray and all those things. We want that. That's part of faithful living in Jesus. We should want that. We want the Spirit to mature those things in us. But, but if those things are just bricks, if that's all they are, they're going to make a very shaky staircase to the sky. You know, the real travesty in all of this, of the travesty of diminishing God, trying to bring him down with a tower of any sort, that would lead us to miss one of God's greatest glories, which is this. That in the course of time, God, in a sense, chooses to diminish himself for us. That according to his own goodwill and purpose, he makes himself small. The creator of the universe, now in Christ, comes down to earth. Not on steps of some tower ladder, but in the womb of a virgin. And he proclaims favor with God, not because of some tower we built him that he's pleased with, just favor because of sheer grace that he has given us. And Jesus comes not to show us the gate of God. Jesus comes to be the gate of God. He is the mighty tower between heaven and earth, heaven come down among us. Do not diminish him, but instead magnify the greatness of his name. Pray with me. Lord, would you guard us from returning to any ghost towns of Babel. Do not let us revisit and go back to the old ways to try to use our own efforts to turn your hand. Lord, would you humble any pride that might be in us? Lead us again to see the glories of Jesus, that you have made yourself nothing, becoming a servant to save us. We thank you, and we give you praise as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.